I absolutely love that video. It's so awesome. Anyways, happy Mother's Day to all of you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Again, my name is Nikki Broughton. I'm um, on staff here at New Hope and part of our teaching team and just so thankful that I get the privilege of speaking to you on this Mother's Day Sunday. Um, Mother's Day is a great day to celebrate all the ladies in our lives, and I have an A-plus mother in my life. She's here this morning. I'm so thankful for her. Here's a picture of the two of us together. Um, Isn't she great? She's just awesome. I love my mama. And then this is what makes me a mama. So this is a picture of our family. So our Grayson will be 19 and is graduating from high school this month. So a little emotional over all of that. And um, Nat is 17 and Luke is 14 and he's almost the same height as me. So I'm almost the shortest one in our family. When I do laundry and I'm washing all our jeans, I can't remember whose is whose anymore. And I forget that mine is now the smallest pair in the house, which is really a really weird thing for me to have that happen. But anyways, I'm so thankful um, for the moms in my life. I'm thankful for being able to be a mom. Um, I know that for all of us on Mother's Day, that it can bring a lot of emotions with it. Because some of us have had an A-plus mom, and some of us may have had more like a a C-minus mom or even a D-minus mom in our lives. Um, And for those of you that have had a troubled relationship with your mother, or maybe that you had a really great relationship with your mother and your mother passed away already, those give you real feels on Mother's Day. Now, there's also the people that wish that they could have been a mother, and that hasn't happened. Or maybe you are a mother, but you won't be able to hear from your kids today, and that's real feels too. So I want you to know that our heart is for you. I'm not crying because I'm emotional. I'm like, actually, my eyes are stinging from the lights this morning. Anyway, so if I start crying, just, just go with it. But I, honestly, it's um, something with the lights that's bothered me this morning that doesn't normally happen. Okay, so I need a tissue or something, if somebody could hand me one. Because this is just going to get worse instead of better. This is my sister. Everybody give her a hand. <laughs> Thank you. I literally am not going to be able to see you guys unless I take care of this. Sorry about that. Okay, just whisper amongst yourselves for 10 seconds, and then I'm going to be fine after that. Okay, that is a million times better. Thank you, Sandy. Okay, here we go. So, today is Mother's Day, and if you're a lady in the house, our heart is for you. In fact, um, we love you. You are special to us, every lady in the house, no matter if you're a mother or not. If you're a lady and you're sitting in here, you get a gift from us this morning, just because of the fact that we want you to know really how special you all are to us. Now, the, the, what we're talking about this morning is not anything really to do with Mother's Day. We, we've been going through the series in the book of Acts, and we're just going to be continuing in that, in that series today. Two weeks ago, Pastor Tim started us in our new series in the book of Acts. Um, how many of you have been using the Acts series guide? Show of hands, most of you in this room, awesome. If you have not received one, make sure that you grab one. Um, there will be on the, t- on the table in the back of the auditorium before you leave today. There is a reading plan that takes you through the book of Acts as we are going through this. Um, when I've been doing this, it's literally been taking me less than five minutes a day to read through it. Sometimes it's only a couple verses a day to do that. And then on the bottom is memory verses that we're asking you to go through. So let's review those um, this morning. So let's review Acts 1-8. Boy, you know, when your eyes start leaking, your nose follows. Have you <laughs> ever had that happen? All right, here we go. Um, 
So let's read this together, okay? One, two, three. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So if you've been memorizing this, then you maybe almost have it down. If not, you have a few more weeks to learn this. But this was our call um, to the first church. So this is what, when Jesus, before he went up into heaven, he told his disciples, this is what I want you to do. And he's like, I want you to talk about me here, and I want you to talk to, be, to me about me in, in, the, in, the, in the counties that you live in, in the states you live in, in the countries you live in, and around the world. I want people to know about Jesus. And then this is the second um, verse in the book of Acts that we chose for you to memorize through this series. So we're going to read this together as well. Okay, ready? One, two, three. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So I hope that you continue to memorize these verses. This is our calling of what Jesus gave to us that he wants us to be doing as a church and hope that we can memorize these verses and and live into these things. Okay, so today, I promise, within a few minutes, this will all stop and I won't be doing this the whole entire the whole entire time we're, I'm up here. Okay, here we go. Today, as we continue our study in the book of Acts, we're going to be um, continuing to study, and we're going to be doing Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and Acts 4, 1 through 31 today. So that's what we're going to be doing. So you guys can start to get your Bibles ready, and I'm going to pray, and then we are going to hop right into this. All right, here we go. Dearly Father God, I pray selfishly that my eyes will stop stinging so that we can just remove that distraction and um, be able to teach your word this morning. Oh, Lord, you are a good God, and you're here in this place with us this morning. I'm thankful for that. Thank you for these children, babies that got dedicated this morning, God, and just the gift that they are in our lives and the blessing that they are. God, I pray that we'll receive from you what you want us to receive that our hearts will be open to what you want to tell us this morning as we study your word together, and that you'll be glorified in this time and in this space. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be starting in Acts 2. Um, so in Acts 2, 42, it, well, what happened is in Acts 2, 42, we see that 3,000 people just got saved. So I'm going to be starting in the scriptures right after 3,000 3,000 people just came to know Jesus as their personal Savior, okay? And so then it says in Acts 2, 41, it says, Those who accepted his message, the message of Jesus, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number on that day. So 3,000 people just got saved. And as we get into Acts 2, 42 through 47, we're going to see that they were trying to figure out how to do this church thing. 3,000 people just came to know Jesus as their personal Savior. So this was the first revival that had ever happened, and this was new to all of them. These 3,000 were beginning what we call now the church. These 3,000 people were the first church. Their faith was new. This was like a summer camp high experience. Have any of you ever gone to summer camp when you're a kid? You went to Bible camp, summer camp, okay? And you were there for a whole week long with all these people who were high on Jesus. And by the end of the week, everybody has gotten saved, and you sang Kumbaya by the fire, whatever song it was, and everybody was crying, and nobody wanted to leave because they were like, this is the best week of my life ever. This is what the first church was experiencing right this moment. They were super high on Jesus. 
and they didn't want to leave each other because of the fact that they have just gotten to experience something so life transformational to all of them. So we're going to read Acts 2, 42 through 47, and it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the first church, these 3,000 people. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This was happened in the, in the first church. In Acts 2.44, it said that they had everything in common. These people all had the same spiritual birthday. They all came to know Jesus as their Savior on the same day. It says they had everything in common. And you know what the everything was? The everything was Jesus. They had Jesus in common. If you um, walked in with a worship program this morning, there's notes on the back of that with fill in the blanks. If you're a note taker, um, you can go ahead and take notes. We'll be, I'll be filling in all those blanks for you as we continue in this message. But they had Jesus in common. Have you ever met somebody that you had something in common with? Um, maybe you both travel to the same place, or maybe you both like the same kind of food, and all of a sudden you're standing next to somebody in the checkout counter at the grocery store and realize that you have something in common with the person that you're standing next to because you have had a shared experience with them. In this Acts 2 passage, it's like these 3,000 people were like, you love Jesus? Awesome. Me too. Let's love Jesus together. They had Jesus in common. That was their shared experience, and they were super excited about it. And then once they realized that they had Jesus in common, in verse 42 it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the prayer part we're going to see more of when we get into Acts 4. But right now we're going to talk about how the point of the, of the Acts church was two things. It said, Apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So the point of the Acts church was two things, to learn God's word and to have community together. I would really encourage you, if you consider yourself to be part of the church, to do these things, to learn God's word. And I think the first part of learning God's word, actually for me, if somebody asked me, like, Nikki, I don't know how to study the Bible, and I'm not really sure where to start, what I would say to you is the first thing would be, learn to love this. Learn to love your Bible because you spend time with the thing that you love. And if you love it, you're going to want to understand it and you're going to want to be in it and you're, you're going to want to know it. And what we learn through the whole book of Acts and as we continue on in the New Testament is that the disciples and the apostles loved this word. In fact, they quoted it all the time, which means that they knew it. They had invested in it. They'd, they'd, they'd spent time in it. So they learned, the church learned God's word. And then the second one, they had community together. It's that they had fellowship with one another, that they wanted to be spending time together. The thing that started happening here was that the first church started to change their focus. What, what they were once living a life apart from Christ, now they're living in a, a life with Christ. Before they came to know Jesus as their Savior, they were living for themselves. And when we live for ourselves, we live inward-focused. Life is more about me, right? When we live for ourselves, we're inward-focused. 
And when the first church started to learn God's word and have community together, they started to change their focus and they started to live more upward focused, Jesus focused, and outward focused, others focused. What they were first doing was living in and now they're living up and out. These people were no longer living for themselves. They were starting to live for God and for others. And when we talk about living for God and others, um, what it should remind us of is the great commandment, right? So the disciples would have been there when Jesus taught the great commandment. It says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, it says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so this is our upward focus. The disciples would have heard Jesus teach this, live for me, love me. You need to have your focus upwards. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hand, prophets hand on these, they hang, sorry, a little typo there, hang on these two commandments. So the first one is living upwards, we love God. The second is living outwards, loving others. And this, if you, again, if you study the Bible, it keeps going back to these two things. And the, and the first church was learning to start, how, to learning how to put all this into practice. So the church is to live up and out. And this is what we just talked about. And the church is to live kingdom-minded. And I'm going to explain this in just a minute. So we as the church, back then and still today, are to live up and out. And we are to live kingdom-minded. In Acts 2.45, we see that the first church started to live kingdom-minded. It says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. When the learning God's word and living in community with each other, what was once mine became his. And we see that with them. This was my land and my property, my stuff. And all of a sudden, they were living in fellowship with each other, and their hands started to open, and they started to live a lot more open-handed. We see a model to us, something that we should live with, how we should live, that everything in our lives should shift when we come to know Jesus as our Savior from mine to his. We are to live kingdom-minded. Now, what does that look like? A quote from Paul Marcoulette says, A kingdom-minded person thinks differently than other people. How do you know what a kingdom-minded person should think or act like? How should we dress? What kind of cars should we drive? I know these questions sound a little silly, but Christians have been asking them for centuries. And Romans fourteen seventeen tells us, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. After I accepted Jesus in my life, I was shocked by some advice I received from well-meaning Christians. Paul, you've got to cut your hair and change your clothes. Don't play cards, go to movies, or listen to rock and roll music. And oh, no more dancing. And I want to say that that is not what a kingdom-minded person should put on themselves. In fact, I want to show you a very quick 30-second video clip of what a whole bunch of kingdom-minded people were doing when our family attended a concert last month in Pittsburgh. Go ahead and watch this. (laughs) 
Okay, this is at a Toby Mac concert in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania last month. It was an absolutely crowded venue with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. In fact, if you're a football fan, Ben Roethlisberger was there, the the quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers. He was at this concert, at the Toby Mac concert. And it was a whole bunch of Christians all together just rocking it out for Jesus. So if you think that being a Christian, being kingdom-minded means living a boring life, I hope I can change that mentality in you this morning. Being a Christian can actually be so much fun. It's really just living in common with that we have Jesus in common and what all that means. A kingdom-minded person does not look a certain way. In Romans 14, 17, it says that being kingdom-minded is not about trivial things like what we eat or drink, but being kingdom-minded is about righteousness, peace, and joy. There's so much fun that we can have living kingdom-minded and having righteousness, peace, and joy. In Romans 14, 17, it says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Last night, I was um, taking a walk, and while I was walking, I was listening to a podcast, and I was listening to, um, a, he's a pastor at a church in Washington, D.C. His name is Ben Stewart. He said, your identity determines your activity. Who you are determines what you do. It's not different weird, it's different good. And I really liked that. That when we are Christ followers and we want Jesus to be what we're all about, we're going to live kingdom-minded because our identity determines our activity, because who you are determines what you do, but it's not different weird, it's different good. And I just, I love that. Another quote about living kingdom-minded says, instead of worrying about what matters now, we start thinking about what will matter forever. And if Jesus is our king, he gets to decide what's right and wrong. A kingdom mentality changes where we put our focus, how we make decisions, and the way we treat others. We don't have to force this way of thinking. It comes as we listen to the Holy Spirit and allow him to guide us. Jesus' presence and power dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. It says that in Acts 1.8. The same way that we learn over time what our bosses will approve of or what our spouses will appreciate, we learn to think like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love the last part of that quote because it says that we don't live kingdom-minded in our own power. We live kingdom-minded by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this whole righteousness, peace, and joy thing ourselves. We need a lot of help. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's like, you don't have to do all of this in your own strength and your own power. Don't try to. In fact, if you try to, you're not going to get very far. You need to do it in God's power. That we are to live a kingdom-minded life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that the first church did that and modeled that for us. The first church stopped living for themselves and they started living for Christ. And then in Acts 2.46, we are reminded once again that they were excited to be together. It says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They truly wanted to be together. The book of Acts shows us that it's possible for a group of believers to live life together, love each other, and serve each other. And do you know what we call that at New Hope? We call that small groups, right? That's what small groups at New Hope is all about. Tim and I have been a part of and have led more small groups than either one of us could count in all the decades that we've been in ministry. Um, It's just been part of life for us. 
We have done life with and loved on and helped a lot of people over the past, like I said, decades of our lives, and they have done the same for us. Um, Tim and I lived in near Atlanta, Georgia for five years, and when we lived there, we moved into a house. We were leading a small group at the church that we were in, and then we were also just a part of another small group. We had moved into that house that week, and all of a sudden, our small group was on our door, doorstep, the small group that we were a part of. We said, um, what are you doing? They said, we're painting. They knew that we had bought all the supplies to paint and that we were just working on it one room at a time. The small group came in, and they didn't leave until every room of the house had a fresh coat of paint on the walls. It's amazing. After we moved back to Worcester to start New Hope, we lived in a small duplex that we were renting in Worcester, and then we were going to live there for several months, and then we were moving into a house. We were going to be moving in a couple of weeks, and a small group from New Hope Loudonville, that's our mother church, the church that planted New Hope Worcester, a small group from that church showed up on our doorstep on a Friday night. They had a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of boxes and Kochi House pizza, and we didn't know they were coming over. They just showed up. We said, what are you doing? They said, we're moving you. We're like, okay, that's great. Like, over the next couple of weeks, when we're moving, let's set them dates. So they know tonight. I said, we don't even have one thing boxed yet. They said, we know we brought boxes. And they came in, this whole group of people with their pizza, and they boxed up every single item in that duplex that we were living in, and they moved us to, that, to the house that we were moving into. We didn't have one thing packed. They moved us, and they didn't leave until the beds were set up and we knew where our pillows were, which is like at 3 a.m. in the morning. We laid down on them. But what we thought was going to take a couple of weeks took one night, and that was from a small group. That's what it's like doing life together. And that's what it's like living open-handed. And can I tell you that living open-handed is so much fun. It's fun to live open-handed. If you're not a part of a small group at New Hope, I highly recommend you joining one. You'll meet weekly to study the Bible together and to fellowship together, which is what the first church did. It's what the first church did and something we should still do today. Small groups are a safe place to ask questions and just to be yourself. You could be a Bible expert or you could be a Bible novice. You could be an extroverted person or you could be in the life of a party or you could be a complete introvert. You could have one tattoo or 20 tattoos and you are welcome at small groups. Small groups are an important part of what what your Christian walk is all about. Um, Warren Wiersbe is one of my favorite theologians, and he summarized Acts 2, 42 by 47 by saying this. He says, The 3,000 new converts needed instruction in the word and fellowship with God's people if they were going to grow and become effective witnesses. And that's still us today. If you're going to grow in your walk with Christ, you need to be in his word, and you need to be around other Jesus followers. And that's what's going to help you grow. Warren Wiersbe writes, The church wasn't there to make converts. They were there to make disciples. He says, The word fellowship means much more than being together. It means having in common. The believers sharing with each other what they had, it was voluntary and was motivated by love. Nobody was making them do this. They wanted to live open-handed in this way. He says, The world will know those who have Jesus by the way that they love and serve others. And then he goes on to say this, The Christians you meet in the book of Acts were not content to meet once a week for services as usual. They met daily, cared daily, won souls daily, searched the scriptures daily, and increased in number daily. 
Their Christian faith was a day-to-day reality, not a once-a-week routine. Why? Because the risen Christ was a living reality to them, and his resurrection power was at work in their lives through the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to be the church. The, the first church, it was awesome. And God's church today is still at work, and we're still doing the same things that we see happened in the first church in the book of Acts. So now we're going to go ahead and continue to Acts 4. So, in Acts 4. In Acts 3, just so that when we know where we're at, when we start to read this, I'm going to read Acts 4, 1 through 31 here, just a second. So, before I read that, so we know the context of where we're coming from. In Acts 3, Peter had just healed a man that had been lame and couldn't walk. This man was over 40 years old, had been lame for most of his life, and all of the community there knew him as the lame guy. Now, This obviously, Peter healing this lame man so he could walk, drew a large crowd. And a bunch of people started asking Peter and John, who was with them, what this was all about and what was going on. So Peter once again reminded them of what had just happened. He's like, where were you when Jesus died on the cross? Do you remember this? And then he didn't stay dead. He, he raised to life. And he's telling the whole story of Jesus to all of them. And while Peter was reminding the crowd of what had happened and was instructing them, some of the religious leaders joined the crowd and they started asking Peter and John some questions of their own. And that's where we get into Acts 4, uh, 1 through 31. Now, We're going to just read this whole thing all the way through, and then when I'm done reading it all the way through, I'm going to come back, and we're going to unpack it together, okay? So here we go, Acts 4, 1 through 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. But by what power or what name did you do this? This is an important question. By what power, what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. And it was like, this is the way I picture it. What are we going to do? What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. The evidence is right there. The lame man's walking. We can't deny that something happened. 
So, because they couldn't deny that a miracle had taken place, to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. We're going to tell them to stop talking about Jesus. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats from the Sanhedrin, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of the holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. That's the Holy Spirit again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So, the religious leaders did not like the story that Peter and John were telling. This crowd that had gathered when they healed, when Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, healed the lame man. The, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, did not like the story that Peter and John were telling. In fact, they felt so threatened by it, so threatened by it that they threw Peter and John in prison. The Sanhedrin that questioned Peter and John was the same council that a few months before had condemned Jesus to die. In fact, these officials recognized Peter and John as the associates of Jesus. We saw that in Acts 4.13. The Sanhedrin was charged with the responsibility of protecting the Jewish faith. And this meant that they had, they had to examine every new teacher and teaching that appeared in the land. They had the right to investigate what the church was doing, but they did not have the right to arrest innocent men and then refuse to honestly examine the evidence. Their question was legal, but they did everything that they could Um, They did everything they could to avoid admitting that a miracle had taken place. It was once again the question of, by whose name? How did this happen? By whose name did you heal? How was this well-known lame man healed? And they didn't like the answer because Peter answered, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. These words must have pierced the hearts of the members of the council because they thought they had already finished with the prophet from Nazareth. And now his followers were telling everybody that Jesus is alive. And since the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, Peter's statement was almost a declaration of war. But the Holy Spirit was the one that was giving Peter to say when he was on trial. 
And the apostle quoted Psalm 118.22. I told you that the disciples and the apostles knew the word of God. They had studied themselves. And that's what he quoted to the Sanhedrin when he said that, um, where Peter made it clear that the members of the council were the builders and that they were the ones that had rejected God's stone, Jesus, the son of God. He goes back to tell him, the Old Testament prophesies that you will be the stone that the builders rejected. And he's saying, and that's you. And here's one of the things about Jesus that we've all probably seen. The truth about him can make other people feel uncomfortable. And this Sanhedrin in the council felt really uncomfortable with what they were talking about. And we also see another truth. When God starts moving in big ways, there will be resistance. When God starts moving in big ways, there will be resistance. Because of the story Peter and John were telling, they got thrown into prison. But because of the story that Peter and John were telling, 5,000 people got saved. So which one do you think was more important to Peter and John? All the people that got saved, right? We read that after Peter and John spent the night in jail, questions started coming, and you know what Peter told them? Basically, he was saying, you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with Jesus. We see that in Acts 4, 9 through 12. And then the Sanhedrin starts to recognize that Peter and John had been with Jesus. And they recognize this in Acts 4, 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I have a lot of favorite verses in the Bible. This is one of them. Because so much of the time, we disqualify ourselves thinking that we are not smart enough or knowledgeable enough for God to use us. And then we go back to this verse. These disciples were unschooled, ordinary men that God used in big ways. And here's the truth I want all of us to hear very clearly this morning. Oh, it's going to be on the um, big screen. Oops, you'll have to fix that for me, sorry. God loves to use those who are overlooked by others. God loves to use those who are overlooked by others. Peter and John, do you guys remember what their trade was before they became disciples? Thank you, Tim. They're fishermen, right? They're fishermen. They went out in boats, and they cast out nets, and they got fish, and they brought them back into the city, and they cleaned them up, and they sold them, and then the next day they went out and did it again. These were unschooled, ordinary men that just knew how to work hard. They didn't go to college or seminary. However, that didn't limit God from using them. God wasn't looking for disciples with high degrees. God was looking for disciples that had the right heart. I, I did end up going to college, and that was the right path for me. Tim did not end up going to college at all. So your lead pastor here that's been the lead pastor for 15 years has no actual formal college training. And I absolutely love that about him. Tim tried to go to college several times. We've been married 25 years. He tried to go to college several times, and every single time he'd, he'd apply to a college, he'd get accepted. We'd make the plan. We had a path. We were doing this, and all of a sudden, every single time, a door got closed in some way. It wasn't from the college. It was some, some kind of life experience that happened that would prevent him from being able to go. 
This happened over and over and over again. People telling him, you should go to college. That's what everybody does. You should do this. He's like, I'm trying to go to college. Every time I try to go to college, something happens that makes me not going to be able to go. And I said, will you please stop trying to go to college? This is obviously not God's path for you. If you keep trying to do this, we're going to get swallowed by a whale. It's literally my words, okay? If you know what I'm talking about, read the book of Jonah. Okay, I said, stop trying to do this. If you keep doing this, we're literally destruction will, will follow us because this is obviously we're trying to push something to happen that's not God's plan. However, I've watched several times Tim get treated as less than because of the fact that he doesn't have a college degree. And I want to say that God is never going to treat us as less than because we don't have a college degree. Or if you have a college degree, that's great. Or if you have a master's degree or a doctor's degree, that's great. But that's not the calling that God put on your life. That's great. Because God is not going to look at you when you go up to heaven and ask for your credentials. He's going to look at your heart. God is not going to look at your credentials. He's going to look at your heart. God is looking for people who have the right heart. He's looking for humble people that will work hard for him, that have the right heart. Do you hear that? Okay, awesome. The truth, and the truth that Jesus was alive from these unschooled ordinary men, and his disciples were showing proof that all of that just really, really messed with the Sanhedrin, Okay. The Sanhedrin wanted to let the thing die a natural death, and this meant threatening the apostles and forbidding them to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. So they're saying, okay, we're going to let you go, but please stop speaking in the name of Jesus. The council did not want the gospel message to spread, and that's, that's exactly what happened. From 120 praying men and women in Acts 1, the church increased to more than 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, and now there are more than 5,000 disciples in the fellowship. So Satan's attempts to silence the church only led to a stronger witness for the Lord. And when the Sanhedrin asked Peter and John to keep quiet about Jesus, they had to make a decision. Are we going to please man or are we going to please God? They're asking us to stop teaching about Jesus. Are we going to do what they're asking or are we going to do what Jesus asked us to do? And this is an extremely important question because, honestly, guys, we can't do both. We cannot live our lives pleasing both man and God. We will be going different directions all the time if we try to do this. We have to live our lives as Christ followers, as a church, as being kingdom-minded. And of course, Peter would have remembered the last time he didn't do things God's way, and he didn't want to do that again. He had had a rooster crow once. He didn't want that rooster to crow again because of the fact that he did not obey what Jesus had told him to do. In Acts 4, 19 through 22, we see that Peter refused to be intimidated by their threats. And all of us need to follow Peter's example and make our decisions on the basis of, is it right and not, is it popular or is it safe? When you feel called to do something, the question that you should ask yourself is, is it right? Not, is it popular or is it safe? Peter and John knew that they were under orders from Jesus to preach the, preach the gospel to the ends of the earth and that it would be wrong to obey the Sanhedrin. Once Peter and John were released by the Sanhedrin, they went back to the other disciples and told them what happened and then started to pray. 
And then when they began their prayer to God, they reminded God of who he is. And they would have been there when Jesus taught them um, how to pray. The Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew, Matthew 6, 9, starts with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It, it, it says, and then and Jesus says, like, when you pray, you should pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven. The very first part of the prayer that Jesus used as a model talks about, I remember God who you are. And the disciples would have been there and remembered that, that that's what they had been instructed. So they always started with remembering who God is. So, so the point is, what do you do when, you, when facing persecution? You remember who God is and you pray. As I said before, when, we, when God is at work, there will be resistance. And when there is resistance, this is what we do. We remember who God is and we pray. It's what the first church did and it's what we should still do today. Acts 4, 23-31 shows us that the church met to pray in order to defeat the enemy. Too often today, believers gather for prayer as though attending a concert or a party. There is little sense of urgency and danger because most of us are comfortable in our Christian walk. But if more of us, of God's people, were witnessing for Christ in daily life and starting to see the resistance of people not really wanting or accepting Jesus like that, if more of us were witnessing for Christ in daily life, there would be more urgency and blessing when the church meets for prayer because we'd understand why we're praying and what that is about. True prayer is not telling God what to do, but asking God to do his will in and through us. They, the first church did not pray to have their own circumstances changed or their enemies put out, put out of office. Rather, they asked God to empower them and to make the best use of their circumstances and to accomplish what he had already determined. Their greatest desire was for boldness in the face of opposition. So the early church prayed, and God answered in mighty power. I think so many times we think as a church that, like, God is here to bless us. But the thing is, yes, God wants to bless us, but God's primary goal is to save the world. God came to save. He came to heal the sick and and to save the world. He didn't come to make life easy for everyone. He came to make himself known. He came to save the world. It's why he came. So we, as a church, should be a part of his mission, of why he was here. And so that just goes back to um, reminding us that the church is to live up, God, it's all about you, and out. So I'm here to serve others and to live open-handed and living kingdom-minded. Before you leave today, all the ladies are going to be receiving um, a little gift. This is a little gift that we have for you. It's this little teeny tiny terracotta pot, okay, and seed plants. You're not going to actually be able to plant your seeds in this teeny tiny little pot, but, you know, we had to give you something. So, okay, so there's some some seeds in here, and then this little tag says, um, live up and out. If we put our seeds in the right soil, the seeds should flourish, right? And so if we give our seeds the right amount of sun and the right amount of light, unless, you know, you just don't do it right or or something, your seeds should grow, right? An inward seed will not sprout and will will not grow. And in fact, inward seeds, I wrote this down somewhere, 
inward seed is never going to sprout and grow. Living inward also, not to a seed, but us as humans, living inward also causes anxiety, fear, and frustration. When we are inward focused, those kind of feelings are what, what happens with us. When we live outward and we let other people into our lives to help us learn God's word and to live in community with them, then we start to see the world the way that God sees the world and we can flourish in that and seeds in the right soil and the right environment will flourish as well. We were not meant, meant to live inward. We were meant to live up and out. And when we live up and out, we will flourish just like, just like seeds will. So my encouragement to all of us is to be open-handed with our lives, with our possession, with our time, to be in the word and living in community with other Jesus followers. As Jesus instructed the first church, so are we instructed in the exact same way. So let's go ahead and pray. Dearly Father, God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the first church, Lord, and the example that we can learn from them of what you want this church to look like and be about. God, I pray that if there's somebody here today that is not part of the church yet because they have not accepted um, your death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, and, and they're not one of your followers yet, Lord, one of your disciples yet, I pray, Lord, that today might be that day that they open their heart to receive you as Savior, God. And I pray for the rest of us here in this church, Lord, that we will live kingdom-minded and open-handed, that we will not live for ourselves, but that we will live for you, love you, and serving others, and that we will live kingdom-minded, God, of knowing that you came to save and that we will be a part of that mission. God, thank you so much that you love us. You could do all of this without us, but you choose not to. You are a God of community. You are a God of, of fellowship. And I thank you, God, that we get to be a part of your great work and of your great kingdom. And I ask this in your name I pray. Amen.